0: In terms of the planning did you have did you have an end point for day one did you have a did you did you did you have a, a town you wanted to get to or you were just going to like what in terms of planning what were you gonna just go as far as you could go until you felt like you needed to take a break is was that was that the was that the thought um, for for day one or did you actually have a actually have a, a distance or a town you wanted to get to
1: yeah, so I would say um, I, I had done more of that for Cocodona. And what I've realized is that when you really try to logistically plan this stuff out for the longer events, like the race starts and everything goes out, out the window. <laughs> and so um, so I we plan things based on guidelines, kind of like my, my, I set like the gold standard. Like this, uh, this is a world, a world beating performance would be if I could average 100 miles each day. Like, out of anything that I've watched in ter- or, or seen in terms of other races of comparable distances, um, you know, if you can be in that like 90 to 100 mile per day range, that is like the cream of the crop, that is like that is like a, a world beating performance. So I looked at that as kind of like a model and said, if I can be anywhere near that, then I'm going to have uh, one heck of a performance.
0: Hello podcast listener, if this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half, Walk Double podcast coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in beautiful Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you and welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as an exercise physiologist, coach, race director and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Cole Crosby is my guest. In the fall of 2011, I received an email inquiry from a student at the University of Oklahoma about snowshoe racing here in New England. Sounds crazy, right? Well, it turns out it wasn't crazy, as that student, Cole Crosby, a decade later would represent the U.S. at the World Snowshoe Running Championships in Argentina, finishing 11th overall and helping to lead Team USA to a second-place finish. But as impressive as that is, as the expression goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. Cole has quietly emerged as one of the top ultra-distance athletes in the US. His list of podium finishes and course records is long and impressive. But it was his most recent success, The Speed Project, that truly exemplified his goal now, to inspire others to reach their goals by modeling hard work and determination. Here he is, Cole Crosby.
1: Cole, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's a long time, uh, but really happy to connect with you here. Well, social media being what it is, I I mean, even
0: though I don't, I can't remember the last time you and I saw each other in person. Through social media, obviously, you know, I I have the the opportunity to 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 keep up, uh, keep tabs on you, follow your follow your adventures and your journey. That's been the that's been the cool thing about uh, about how you use social media. Um, you know for for folks like me who don't always get a chance to see you in person it's a great way to kind uh, of kind of keep up with you um so so cole the og right authentic exceptional admirable that's a way that we could describe that right that that slang og cole cole who do you consider to be the og
1: of ultra running Wow. Great question. Um, before you were going to say an, just an OG individual, I'd have to say my wife, uh, Ashley Pruitt Crosby, because without her, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish any of the tasks that I've been able to do in my life so far. 100%. Um, but outside of her, someone that, um, you know, I think for me, it has to be someone that, that exudes a certain type of um, personality that is really infectious. I I have to say it's Courtney Dewalter, hands down. And I think the reason re- reason for her is that she just exudes this positivity. And I think uh, that's what makes her just such a global athlete that bridges beyond just the sport of ultra running, um, because she's you know she does incredible things, but she approaches things in such a very relaxed and sometimes even just free flowing manner, right. Rather than being super, super calculated. Um, she's just like, I, I, I love running. I go out and run a couple hours and that's how I, you know, crush these races. And I think that that truly is something impressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, have you ever had an opportunity to meet her? I have not No. Have you ever been in an event in which she has also been competing? Um, I've run events that she has run, but not during the same time. So I've never, never been on the same starting line as her. Got it. Um, well, uh, as we will talk about
0: your, uh, uh, your Q rating in the sport of ultra running, running is certainly on the rise. And so I suspect it's only a matter of time before the two of you find yourselves, you know, shoulder to shoulder at a starting line. And uh, and and how cool would that be, uh, you know, for you, right, to get an opportunity to meet her? And I I suspect that she probably is in person exactly as she appears, you know, uh, from afar, um, right? Uh, again, authentic, exceptional, exceptional, uh, and and admirable. Cole, for for the listener who doesn't know
1: Cole Crosby, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say that I am pretty much been a lifelong runner. Um, You know, the very first time that I actually went running was when I I remember I was four years old. Uh, Growing up in Princeton, New Jersey, my parents would take me out to the Princeton University track and I would try to run as fast as I could around that track. And of course, with my little stubby legs at that time, I would fall down. And in true Cole Crosley fashion, I would just get back up and then keep running and fall down and get back up. And I, and I, didn't really think about it much, obviously at the time, but from that point, I've, you know, continued to fall into running, whether it was, you know, through playing different sports and, uh, it just, it just clicked for me. Right. So from sixth grade really onward to now is when I got into like organized running and, uh, yeah, it's just continued to blossom and I've continued to push my limits and run farther and farther and farther. You certainly have done that. Um, I,
0: I'm going to, I'm going to take a stab, uh, at the fact that running probably isn't your full-time profession. So if it's not tell us, what do you, what do you do professionally? What pays the bills?
1: Yeah. Um, so I've been, I've worked full-time, um, my whole life. So I've running really has been a very competitive hobby of mine, I would say. Um, and so With that, I've worked everything from just retail jobs to, um, you know, working as a fuel marketing rep for a company called Nathan, which people might know from uh, as a running uh, like hydration packs and reflective vests and whatnot. Um, And so now I've kind of been growing my own business as a sales rep uh, for New England. Um, So I um, sell uh, kind of golf apparel, golf accessories, and soon i'm starting to connect and bridge into uh some running products as well so kind of excited it's it's fun to be kind of entrepreneurial but that's kind of where i'm at now is building my own business
0: uh it's wonderful to be entrepreneurial uh and i i say that from experience um that's right yeah i'm glad i'm glad that you mentioned the
1: golf um (laughs) i know you swing a mean club I see you on social media. I was like, well, I like, man, I well, gotta get Chris well, Yeah, well, <laughs>
0: well, well mean as in erratic. Yes, uh, I I do swing quite a mean club. Um, but I'm glad you I'm glad you brought golf up. Um, I do remember that now. Um uh, maybe it was a few years ago, uh it wasn't that long ago that I remember you posting something about golf. You were playing golf, you do play
1: golf. I mean, I haven't swung a club in two years, so, but yes, I, I have played golf enough. Um, I'd like to get back into it. Um, and hopefully that'll change. They're, they're building a top golf, right? Like right. Two miles from my house. So very cool. Uh, at that point I will have no excuse. I'm going to have to go and swing a club at some point, but,
0: um, cool. yes,
1: I, lo- I love golf. I think it's a great game. I've played it a bunch. Um, and there's actually a lot of parallels between golf and running to be quite honest.
0: Well, uh, I, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, specifically, uh, on the mental side of sport, at least for me, um, you know, physically there, there aren't, uh, there aren't a whole lot of parallels between golf and ultra running necessarily, other than the fact that, I mean, as long as long as you're not riding a cart, you know, you're, you're, you're walking and there is some walking in ultra running, but really from, from the mental side of things, you know, staying, staying present, um, working through adversity, uh, you know, moving on to the next shot, uh, right. Not, not letting, not letting the. Now the negative emotions of the first couple of holes sort of bleed over into the next few holes. Same thing with ultra running. I'm sure there are, there are miles or hours in which, you know, things aren't going very well and yet it's still early in the race Um, too early for you to completely give up mentally. You got to hang in there because um, just like golf, you know, you're, you're only one shot away from the best shot of the day. You know, you're only in ultra running. You're only one mile away from, your spirit being lifted in the wind at your back and the sun coming up and, and shining on the back of your neck. Right. So um, uh, maybe those aren't the parallels that you're, you're talking about, but for me uh, that's uh, that, that's what I see uh, as similarities between the sports. What, 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 what do you say about that?
1: Yeah. Um, I usually tell people it's, they're both very fickle sports. Um, It takes a lot of time to get really good at it and it doesn't take much to Uh, lose some of that. Right. And um, on on that note too, the other thing is like what makes a great um, ultra runner and what makes a great golfer isn't necessarily that they just play, they play or participate in the sport really, really well. It's really how they rebound when they make a mistake. And so when a golfer makes a bad shot, how, what they, what they are able to do when they're like in the rough and they have to hit this, this crazy shot through a tree and stuff. And they hit the green, That is where the difference between an amateur and a true professional. And I believe that's the same for an ultra runner. Um, Someone like a Courtney DeWalter, when she is feeling like garbage, you almost don't, can't tell that she feels like garbage because she has learned and trained herself so well to almost like play off this, this notion that, you know, she's just so strong and can't be broken down. Um, And so like, you know, that again, those are kind of the similarities that I see between the, between the sports. Hmm. I heard a, uh,
0: a professional golfer, uh, one time when, when asked about, you know, how does he deal with, uh, adversity? Um, he says that his coach has taught him to use the acronym win W I N and in this instance, win stands for what's important now. And so when when the wheels are starting to come off a little bit, and you again, we you know as golfers and as ultra runners, we we understand what that means when the wheels start to come off or when the wheels start to wobble a little bit, because almost always there's a wobble before the wheels totally fall off. Right. Um, And, you know, it's it's in those times in which we can we we have a choice. We can either catastrophize. We can either completely, you know, make a mountain out of a molehill or we can we can decide what's important now. What do I need to do now in this moment? Not 10 minutes from now, not 10 minutes ago. But what do I need to do in this moment? Right. In order for me to work through whatever, whatever the challenge happens to be. So I really like that, you know, and, and I mean, as much as I, as much as I, I talk a good game, it's, it's really hard to be disciplined to do that, <laughs> but golf like, like, like running and ultra running particularly gives us plenty of opportunities to work on it. Doesn't it? it sure does.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love it. You're speaking my language, Chris, you're speaking my yeah. language. I mean, yeah. Right. Right. I think right. That,
0: yeah. Um, so before we talk a little bit more about your about your running background and and some of your current running exploits, I thought it'd be fun for a few minutes to talk a little bit about how you and I came to know each other it's a I mean it's a common theme uh, in this in this show really you know I all of my guests are people that I uh, people that I know um, uh, um, some I, I know really well just because I've had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with them others, uh, I know but I don't know as well um, but the common theme is I've had the opportunity to to get to know everyone who's who's been on the show but but for me um, what I have found interesting is the <laughs> is is the different perspectives my perspective on 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 how you and I came to know each other and and perhaps your perspective because I almost always there are details that I that I have missed and, and have forgotten, but those details are really important to me. So, so let me give you this. I think, uh, you and I, well, in fact I know when you and I met because I went back into my, uh, and my acidotic racing hotmail account and I searched for not your current email address, but your previous email address, because I'm like, I know at some point, Cole ha- must have reached out to me. Now, maybe you reached out to me on social media, but eventually you followed it up with an email. And of course, because I save all those things, I I actually do have the, the first email inquiry that you sent to me in May of, uh, no, I don't know that it was, no, it wasn't May. It was November of 2011. Uh, you had, and I'll... I'll I'll get your perspective on on why you reached out to me in November of 2011. But you reached out to me in November of 2011, and one thing led to another. You became uh, a member of Acidotic Racing, and in fact, that next September, September of 2012, you would be sleeping on my couch uh enjoying enjoying uh, i believe spaghetti and meatballs for dinner um and uh in in preparation for an for a race that you and i would do together with my wife karen um uh the following two days i'll let you tell that story but 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 cole what what do you remember about reaching out to me in uh in november of
1: 2011 yeah I, so what i love about this is that you really ultimately got to see me pretty much at the very beginning of my ultra running, like career, right? Like the beginning, the beginning of me wanting to get into ultra running. And so at the time I was um, I graduated from the university of Oklahoma. Um, well, I think when I reached out to you, I was training for the Oklahoma city marathon and I was looking at graduate schools and I was got someone brought up snowshoe running um, someone in my like training circle. And I was like, huh? I look up, look it up online. I'm like, there's all these people wearing acidotic racing snowshoe running. I'm like, I got to figure out, I got to find out more. Right. And so that's kind of where it all started. I was like, Hey, can you tell me more about snowshoe running? And they were like, yeah, you got to wear Dion's. And I was like, okay. And that, that's what, ha- I mean, literally I bought a pair of Dion running snowshoes, didn't get to use them. Cause there's was no snow in Oklahoma to, to think of. At that time i mean you know they get snow every once in a while but not enough to really uh throw on the snowshoes but yeah that's how it all kind of started and then um for grad school i moved out to suny Cortland, so Cortland, new york central new york state uh just south of syracuse by about 30 miles or so and uh you know joined acidotic racing uh it was like my, my first club team that i ever joined and um then we got linked up to run a Ragnar relay, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll do that. Why not?" And that was my first Ragnar too. Uh, the reach, reach the beach, um, or maybe it wasn't Ragnar at the time. It was still reach the beach. It but was. anyway, right. you know, that's right. Um, yeah, so we uh, linked up, and I drove drove out and s- slept on your couch and hung out with everybody. And that, you know, that was like my first like real, I think, acidotic experience, um, which was amazing. Well, reach the beach is a great way to get introduced to um,
0: uh, t- to a you know a, a fair number of, of of teammates in a really short period of time because you know you s- you'll spend the next two days uh, in a van with five other teammates and perhaps a driver um, and you know every couple of hours you get an opportunity to interact with the other van of six teammates uh, right during the during those exchange periods. Um, I mean, it, you know, for anyone who has done reach the beach, um, you know, it's it it's it's really more about what happens outside of running than 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 the actual running itself, um, really, because the the majority of the event is spent, you know, traveling two hundred plus miles in a van with you know sweaty, smelly teammates, um, and just sharing stories and laughs and, and fellowship. And, and, uh, it's a really, it's a super cool experience. My wife, Karen, and I, we did it uh, for a decade. Uh, she raced 10 times. I raced nine. I, I wasn't able to race the final year that, uh, that we did it, but you're right. That was, uh, that was pre-Ragnar. That was just the old original reach the beach. Yeah. And, uh, I think, uh, thanks to you, you were our you were our hired gun. Um, I think we finished 17th overall, which was not bad considering I think there were several hundred teams, and uh, we were inside the inside the top 20. And and I, I, I will say that's not bad. Be, I said it's not bad, and I, I characterize it that way because uh, I mean, outside of you, who was a, a top-notch uh, you know elite runner. Uh, the rest of us were just sort of average middle of the road. I mean, we, we love running, but we were, we were not, we weren't an elite team. Let's put it that way. Uh, We were just a bunch of friends who, who loved to run. And we happened to have a a really fast young guy from, from, from New Jersey by way of, of Norman, Oklahoma through SUNY Cortland, through to acidotic racing. So we were uh we were really fortunate uh to have you and then yeah I mean for the next couple of years you would you'd represent acidotic racing and and uh uh all sorts of um uh, uh well probably mostly off-road stuff at that point right trail some some trail racing mm-hmm. and some snowshoe racing um yeah I mean what 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 was going on with you in in the you know in the in the 2010s uh what what, what did your what did your, your, what did your running look like then?
1: Yeah. I mean, initially um, you know, I, I, I've always looked up to uh, Joseph gray. Um, he's a, I don't know, like an 18 time like national team member for the United States in mountain uh, mountain trail running. Um, he was an Oklahoma state grad. So like when I was a freshman, he was a senior or like, a, and I think I was a sophomore. I ran big 12s when I think he ran big 12s as a, he was like a, uh, had a fifth year. And um, you know, I I was like, yeah, I want to run. Like literally, my graduation present to myself was oh, I'm going to run up Mount Washington, and not ever really running up as a, a mountain like that before. Like I had been up to like maybe like a 2,000 foot, like something that would be officially, you know, just classified as a mountain, though it's like a big hill. You know, doing that and then going up to running 6,288 feet and with some of the worst weather in the world kind of thing, running at Mount Washington was um, an eye-opening experience. And um, one of the things that I learned was that uh, that style of running was just, I don't, it didn't totally suit me. There was elements of it that did, but I was just like, I'm physically, I'm too scrawny. I'm not strong enough. I don't have strong enough legs to just power up like five miles straight up a mountain kind of thing. Um, and so I think, I kind of started to explore ultra marathon running because I started realizing, well, I can still power up mountains, but the longer it goes, the better I am at picking and choosing my own battles rather than just like redlining it. And uh, so, you know, when, when I was running with acidotic initially, it was like loom mountain, cran um, Cranmores, all the uphill kind of like what I think are now a part of the USATF, like new England mountain trail running circuit kind of thing. That's right. Um, and I did do some of the, like the USA TF, like national championships, like that crown the top five, get a, get the, be on the USA mountain running team. Um, so, you know, those were kind of some of my initial goals starting out. And I learned pretty quick that, uh, I was going to reevaluate my goals and start to transition into longer distances. Uh, and yeah. And so, uh, as as part of that evolution
0: um you know i always find it fascinating when people get into into ultras um you know you know where they start in terms of in terms of a target distance because there isn't there isn't any sort of set formula to how to do this right i mean i just from my own personal experience um <laughs> the first time i attempted a 100 mile race the vermont 100 um I, I'm not sure that I had ever gone beyond the marathon distance. So, uh, and, and maybe that wasn't the, the, the brightest idea, but, but, but there isn't, you know, it's, it, it's not necessarily always done sequentially, you know, you don't, you don't go from marathoning to 50 K, you know, to the 50 miles to hundred K, you know, up to the hundred mile distance. Um, I mean, some, maybe some people do, but what, where did you, where did you start in the,
1: in the ultra realm? What what was the surface what was the distance do you remember well, that's what's funny is that i actually did try to approach it sequentially um you know think think of it this way too when i came into this sport like now is so, such a different time with so many younger athletes coming into it like right after even after like high school you know like there's 20 year olds that are running 100 miles which at the time when i came into it i was the youngest person out there um And oftentimes, uh, you know, by 10 or 20, 20 years, which, um, what it, what it lent was, uh, I, I listened a lot to, to those that were already in the sport and they had told me, listen, you don't need to push things. You're young. You got plenty of time. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to learn from them. It's best to respect each distance for what it is and, and then kind of move up. So I did, I mean, initially I made, I kind of, I went rogue initially. I ran a 50 K at the white rock 50 K, uh, before I ran the Oklahoma city marathon. Um, so I kind of like skipped ahead there where I was like, Oh, if I can run a 50 K, I could run a marathon. Right. And it translated. Well, um, don't necessarily recommend everyone to do that. Um, and then, you know, as I got into ultra ultra running, it was trail marathons, 50 K, 50 K distances, 50 mile was really kind of, you know, um, when I was kind of working at the Finger Lakes running company in Ithaca, New York with Ian Golden, who puts on red new racing, um, you know, he had some 50 mile races and that's kind of where I cut my teeth at that distance. And I really focused on the 50 mile distance for a while. So I ran GFK a couple of times, uh, you know, I had a great run at this race called the Can Lake 50, which is around a Finger Lake in upstate New York. Um, and, uh, ran a blister, uh, you know, I would say a fast, a very fast time. It was like five, f- five hours, 47 minutes, 23 seconds or something like that. And the record still stands. Um, and that was at a time when I didn't have a GPS watch, no carbon plated shoes, didn't really understand nutrition, didn't know what I was doing to be like, I mean, I thought I knew what I was doing, but I really didn't know what I was doing now with the knowledge I have at this point. And, um, yeah. And, and so I kind of sat there for a while and then I kind of dabbled in the hundred K and the, the whole goal was to try and make a USA national team, whether it's a trail team, a 50 K national team, hundred K. And I did that really for the first, uh, I guess like eight years of my ultra running career. Um, and I would swing, swing for the fences and come. Oh, so close every time, um, throughout all distances. And, uh, yeah, and then leading into that, COVID happened, and something miraculous happened.
0: <laughs> it kind of did, um, which which I, we're going to get an opportunity to talk about. But let me ask you this follow up question to that. Then, um, when did you realize during this decade, right, um, that you had real potential in the sport of ultra running? Like when when was that aha moment? Like like, yeah, I this was the right decision for me. W-
1: w- when w- When did you realize that? Um I mean, really that Can Lake race was kind of the seventh fastest time in North America. Everyone else ahead of me had run courses that were on tracks or like completely pancake flat. and the course I was on was completely undulating and challenging. Um, you know, when they have hills that have names, you know that like <laughs> Hill you like you know that that's serious. <laughs> and it was a good point there's a cemetery at the top and everyone always talk about like don't look at the cemetery because that's where like you just feel like you (laughs) want to curl over and die you know um so yeah you know the running that five the 5 uh 47 was kind of like eye-opening to me And, and talking to one of the race directors he was like oh you should run the mad city 100k and that and you could probably make the us 100k team and i was like oh cool okay and that's where the seed was planted. Ultimately it was like, okay, I have potential. Um, I love doing this. Like it's, it's this whole new frontier for me. So I'm just going to kind of dive right in and go for it. Um, I, 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 I've heard you or I've, I've read you talk
0: about um, why you do what you do. But share that share that with the audience. I I, I, it, I think it's a really fascinating perspective. It's a, I think it's a refreshing perspective and it's somewhat of a unique perspective. So why why do you do what you do, Cole?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think ultimately for me, like I really I just want to try and inspire people, especially at this point in my age, in my career. Like I have had enough experience in the sport to where um, I've observed and seen certain things um, from all different sides, um, of the sport. And I just want to be more of an active voice for people that may not have had the opportunity to speak up. And so, um, part of that is also kind of championing the, uh, you know, the, the beast coast, the East coast, um, the Midwest, um, you know, just these, these geographic areas of the country that just don't get the media attention, that don't get the respect. The athlete stories aren't talked about, um, in like the main media that we we consume on a daily basis. And so, um, you know, my goal is I want to leave the sport better than how I, when I came into it. And, um, if I can be able to help provide or, you know, grant opportunities for these up and coming athletes that maybe I didn't have, then I can feel like at least I've left the sport better than, you know, how, when I found it. So, um, You know whatever that amounts to i mean i'm still trying to figure that out like how i mean when you say like how do you inspire people like that's just a tough question to answer right so the only way i can kind of go about it is saying you know i'm I'm just going to be my authentic self i'm going to do the best i can um you know also kind of bring the ultra running performances down to a level that's like you know i truly believe that anyone can achieve these things like um when i say like i'm nothing special what i mean by that is like you know i really i'm just uh, somebody that's just worked their tail off and really have dug in in, in different ways you know i didn't just jump into the sport as some crazy physical specimen you know i wasn't running 4 hours and 59 minutes for 50 miles right i was running 5 hours and 47 minutes and so um I, you know i've just i've worked on things and been intelligent about it and i think that that's obtainable for anybody um you know if you're willing to put in the work and all that stuff so
0: yeah, you know, and I, I think when it comes to inspiration, in fact, I, I just had this conversation uh, with a with another guest just very recently. You know, the difference between motivation and inspiration, right? Um, motivation is a is a pushing force, where inspiration is a pulling force, and in both of those circumstances, we are working toward. Being the best version of ourselves to be motivated is to is to have a push toward your best self to be inspired is to figure out how to grab hold of the rope, figuratively speaking, and pull yourself toward the best version of yourself. For those people who are an inspiration, like I believe you are, we describe those people as being an agent of influence. Essentially, I feel like what you are able to do in sharing your story and carrying yourself like you carry yourself, essentially what you do is you lead people to their rope, where they grab on and they pull themselves toward the best versions of them. As an agent of influence, you guide people to that. You don't push people toward that you help people to pull themselves toward the best version of themselves. I really like the idea of being an inspiration, not being motivational. I I feel like motivation is a very hollow pushing force. Uh, ultimately, you want people to grab onto their own destiny so to speak, right? And and, and again, I I really feel like like you sharing you sharing your approach to these things is an inspiration for people. People see what you do and see the way you do it and think, you know what? I may not be able to do what, what Cole does, but I can do it the way he does it. Uh, I can I can carry myself the way he carries himself because I can clearly see that you are moving with purpose and intent and focus toward who you want to be, right? Right. And there's a lot to be learned from that. So think of yourself, Cole, as an agent of influence. You don't really have to do anything other than just be you. And by being you and I think and by sharing your story, you are an inspiration to people. I, I really I really feel like that's that's the case. Um, well, I, I mentioned the I mentioned the OG right, at the beginning at the beginning of the show. And I want to talk a more, a little bit more about the OG, but I want to talk about a little bit different version of the OG. I want to talk about something called the Speed Project, specifically the OG route. Okay, um, Cole. For, now, I, 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 I must consider myself as 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 being uh, one of the uh, one of the undereducated uh, as it relates to these things because before you. Uh, Before you did what you did just recently this past March, Um, I didn't know what the speed project was. And maybe I'm in good company. Maybe there are a lot of people that don't know what the speed project is. Um, So this is your opportunity, uh, I I think, to shed a little bit of light on this really cool thing that's happening in the ultra running scene. So, Cole, what is the speed project? And then what's the OG route?
1: Yeah. Off topic, really quick. I have to say that, Chris, you've also been an inspiration to me, too, because you also helped encourage me to kind of keep continuing on, you know. So I just want to thank you real quick, too. Um, Appreciate that. So, yeah, you've been instrumental with kind of setting things in motion for me as an athlete. And I've kind of taken some of the lessons you've given me and just run with it. Right. Um, Appreciate that. That's an honor. Yeah. Uh, you're an OG for sure. Um, and to segue into this, the speed project, this crazy event, um, a life-changing event. Um, so it's been going on for 10 years. Um, it's very much an underground event. So um, I think, I feel like there's these, you hear about these like runs that people do in like New York city and San Francisco. And they like, they're like, everyone has their shirts off and they're like, it's like all like, Picture is taken in like black and white, like grayscale, and it's like not a race, but it is a race, you know. Um, and I would say Speed Project kind of has some of that kind of DNA built into it, but it's something entirely different. So similar, funny that we're talking about. We talked about Reach the Beach, um, you know, Hood to Coast, um, all these great relay events. Uh, virtually, that's what the Speed Speed Project kind of is. Um, it started as a as a relay. And the way that it really started was the main race director, not, uh, Nils, uh, it's hard to pronounce his last name, like Arnd. Um, he's very much, he works in the artist community in, in Los Angeles. And um, he uh, was new to Los Angeles at one point. Um, and he just c- kind of got linked into this running community and wanted to, he just ran around LA. And him and his, his friends were like, Hey, I want he was like, I'm tired of running around LA. I want to do something like, just like, like out of this world, like crazy. And one of his friends said, Hey, why don't we run from LA from Santa Monica pier to Las Vegas? And he was like, yes, I love that idea. All right, let's do it. And they, so they did it as a relay. Um, they created this route called the OG route, which is kind of termed as the original prescribed route. So, um, it's the route that inspired this whole entire event. And uh, it goes through a portion of Death Valley, kind of the Southern portions just South of the park and South of what we all know as the Badwater 135 mile race, which is uh, do, do a Google search and you'll see it's one of the most brutal endurance events in the world, um, historically. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's kind of, um, kind of a little snapshot of what the event is ultimately another way to describe it is it's just a gathering of kind of like-minded people um pretty funny is that um coming into the speed project i i felt like i was like the most like um most not alike the traditional people that will run the speed project like everyone's so much cooler than me i'm kind of a dorky kind of like guy right and so Um, you know, like everyone's got cool tattoos and like cool stories and like, they're all like, they're trying to be like, you know, they are, well, they are like some of the most interesting people out there. And, and I just didn't feel like I totally fit that mold, but I, I wanted to represent, you know, the East coast and just throw down and see what happens. And, um, that's what makes this event so special is that, um, um, they're just so open and welcoming to people like each person brings their own kind of ethos and element into the event and that's what makes it special. Uh because it's it's not necessarily there's a lot of creativity to it. It's not necessarily this event that has a marked course and you have to follow the turns and all these rules and all this stuff. They kind of give you enough of a canvas and say like this these are kind of the guidelines and how you paint this painting is up to you. And that is a very freeing, freeing thing. And I think that's what ultimately drew me to the speed project was, uh, seeing the, you see all the coverage on the relays and all that kind of stuff. But then, um, you know, there's people, uh, that ran the whole, the whole, their own course, um, you know, solo by themselves with it, with a crew assisting them along the way. And I was like, that seems insane. Maybe that's something that I want to do. And, um, as I saw, um, I think it was in 2021. David Kilgore, um, who is a uh, lives in New York City, very well respected um, ultra runner and athlete. Um, he, he was, I believe, was the first one to complete this, just initial initial speed project solo. He did his own route, um, which was shorter than what I ended up doing, but um, ultimately that set the tone for solo runners, um, and then. 2023 comes along and here we are. All right.
0: Um okay, excellent. That's an excellent setup. Um uh let me let me let me back up a little bit. How did you learn about the speed project? How did it get on your radar?
1: Um I uh so I had some friends and connections that were maybe doing the relay kind of teams so like the thing that makes speed project kind of unique it it very much has like a hood to coast kind of feel to where a lot of brands send full athlete teams to try to break the record so on running has sent teams ultra nike uh tracksmith apparel uh strava i mean the list goes on and on and on and um you know because it's such a secretive event uh you kind of similar to like a Barclay marathon, like you don't really, you have to really be on the, in the inner circle to even know like how to like get into this thing and how to do it. Um, so I I was just an outside observer and was like, wow, this thing is really cool. And like, there's this, just a, you know, you, you look at the, the photos, the videos, you're like, this is just a wild event. Um, and just the environments they go through are just, you know, totally unlike anything that I've ever experienced. And so that's where I kind of caught the bug. Um, And funny enough, like I was, uh, I had, was getting ready to run a Cocodona 250 in 2022. And I was running the Boston Marathon and connected with a mutual friend in the Airbnb that we were staying at. And uh, ultimately uh, he knew kind of had some mutual connections with the race, the race, like organizers with the speed project. And I expressed that I was interested in running the solo and uh, kind of connected me with the right people. And that's how it all happened, kind of behind behind the scenes, behind the curtain of uh, social media, direct messaging kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, and that's that's how I kind of, uh, you know, proceeded to, like, apply for the event and do all that stuff.
0: Good. I'm glad you mentioned I'm glad you mentioned the application, because what I read was uh, that you had to that you had to apply. Runners, athletes had to apply. Um, And um, uh, I mean, you had to you had to among other things, apparently, um, you had to, you had to provide, uh, what your interesting motivation to run the event is. Uh, uh so, so, A, did you apply? Did you actually have to apply? And then B, what, what was your interesting motivation
1: to run? What did you say to them? Yeah. Um, so I did apply and, uh, it's kind of cool. Cause it's like this, like, really like it's like a almost like a cool google doc and and like you click it's like you click it's like a survey you click on the next next thing it's like tell us more about x y and z and you're like and it's it's worded in like very speed project way which is like just very poetic and um which i think is amazing and it's just so different from anything that i've ever you know it's not like your your gender your your t-shirt size like none of that um and so yeah, I, I pretty much had said that um, speed project spoke to me because, uh, you know, I had run almost 200 miles before ever, ever before ever finishing a hundred mile race. I had never finished a hundred miles in a race and then a- ended up running double the distance uh, when I ran across New Jersey in 2021. And, uh, you know, just that kind of like going off of like a roots, but it's like kind of, it kind of became, um, almost like my own roots in a way. Um, the whole nature of when I ran New Jersey is very similar to, or had similar elements to the speed project. And so I just talked about how, um, I had kind of this like connection to this style of running and race, because, um, you know, there's just the, the the more that creative element is something that really has spoken to me. Um, And, um, because it is done in an event format, that's something that I really like too. I like, I love FKTs. I think that they're awesome. Um, but there's just something elevated a little bit more when it's actually like a, like an event. And that's kind of what the speed project kind of offers. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much, I just talked about how, um, you know, I've just, I've gained so much value from these longer events. Um, and, um, you know, just, excited to kind of discover more about myself out there, um, running from LA to Vegas. So, so when you, when you got word that you, your application
0: had been accepted and that you had a spot in the speed project as a soloist, we'll talk more about the details of that in just a moment. Um, help me timeline this, like, so you, you, you just finished the speed project this past March, 2023. And you're going to talk about that, but what I'm interested to know before you, before we talk about what the speed pro- project actually was for you, um, I want to talk a little bit about the preparation. So, so you, you, when do you get
1: word that you are in? When do yeah. You get so um, let's see. I, Oh, uh, I got the application, I think, uh, around the like end of June or so. Um, I put it in pre- pretty quickly. I would say um, probably like I submitted it the month of July. They would give you a decision by the end of August. And so end of August rolls around, and I get a little email message in my inbox that says... Um, you've been accepted. And there's like little flags and stuff. And then it's like, here, here's this click on this link to be able to like, figure out more of the information about the speed project and you open the link and all of a sudden it's like the, the, the magical doors open up and the light shines through and you're like, Whoa, this is what I'm doing. Um, Cause everything else is kind of like in that smoke and mirror is kind of like, you know, it's things are kind of hidden from you. And so um, once that once that kind of gets revealed, then it's like, oh, OK, here's the the map of what the OG route is. And, you know, and, and you kind of get to see more of like um, under the hood in terms of like how they set up the events, the communication. Um, you know, there's there's a lot more. Some of the they also put in some humor into the, uh, the document as well, which is great. Um, and it just really outlines kind of like what you're going to experience.
0: So when you finally get notification, this is August of 2022, you've got seven months to prepare Mm -hmm. for what will end up being a 346 mile run with 17,000 feet of vertical elevation um, that uh, you will do with a crew. And we're going to talk about your crew. We're going to talk about uh, how you actually covered those 346 miles you got seven months now i suppose if you're carrying a, a high enough level of general fitness and you're healthy seven months is would seem to be plenty of time to prepare because frankly <laughs> i mean who can really ever be prepared for a 346 mile race i mean it's a, sort of like training for a 100 mile race i mean you can you'll never do an 80 mile run in a 100 mile training camp um so right i mean so you know at some point you, you got to be healthy and you got to be as fit as you possibly can. You got to have all your logistics dialed in, got to have your mental game really sharp. Um, And then, and then you, you're just gonna, you just, you got to lean in, uh, right. You got to lean into the unknown. Um, And I would suspect that the speed project, there was a significant amount. Well, maybe the entire thing was essentially unknown. I mean, you knew the route when the route was revealed to you, but this was the first time that you would be, you would be running these roads and ATV trails, um, as a soloist. Um, right. So there was a tremendous amount of unknown Cole during those seven months, more or less. Um, how did you prepare? What, what did you, what did your preparation look like? When did you, when did you start to turn the screw on? Like I'm, I'm in training camp mode. Like when, talk about that a little bit. I'm really fascinated about that.
1: Yeah. Um so just to put it into context, I had um finished Cocodona, you know, uh in May, um beginning of, beginning of May, and I knew you know, I I had a, a a very uh unique race experience. Um just I made some mistakes. I had some bad blisters and um ultimately it was my crew and and kind of the volunteers and support staff that I would say salvage my race and allow me to kind of be like a Phoenix rising from the ashes. I finished like part of my language, but like a bat out of hell. I really was was trucking it, um, at that finish line. And Um, and just to interrupt you, Cole, that for the listeners, not familiar with that, that's a 200 mile
0: race, 250, 250 mile race. Okay. And that's in the, the, the Arizona desert.
1: Yes, it goes, um, it goes, Traditionally, it goes from kind of like this, you know, like real desert and then go finishes up in Flagstaff, connecting some towns, kind of mountain towns. Okay. Um, last the last year, there was a, a fire that cut out like the first like 50 K of the course. And so we had to run around the the city or town of Prescott. Um, and uh, that was, you know, it, it lent to its own kind of bits of challenges and whatnot. Just I think everyone went out really fast. But long story short. I, I had a great performance, but it wasn't my best performance. I felt like I left a lot out there. And so when the Speed Project came about, um, I really looked at it as an opportunity to kind of redeem myself, to put together the type of performance as an athlete that I could look on and say, like, I left it all out there. I gave the very best, like, and when I would do a per- peer review of myself, I was like, I want to have my next big run be something that I look, on, look back upon and being like, I nailed it. That was, that was exactly how I wanted to execute. Um, and so, you know, the, the really when things first start, um, you know, seven months out, I didn't really, I didn't want to focus on, I knew that I had this carrot on the stick way further down, but I just wanted to keep doing my own thing. Um, do the normal training, uh, normal nutrition, uh, continue to do the strength work, like not really like overcomplicate things. Um, and the biggest thing, like the reason why I chose the OG, OG route or OG route in many ways, was because, um, in some ways, it left out uh, risk for my crew. Um, it's you know I talked to Nils, the the kind of race organizer over the phone. We kind of had some some calls to kind of like vet and kind of like go through things, and he really assured me that you know the 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 OG route, though longer in length, had uh, some. Uh, fewer riskier sections in terms of uh, having vehicles get stranded on uh, sandy, rocky, dirt roads, um, which there's a um, a portion that most people run through called the power line, which is literally like, I don't know, 50 to 80 miles long. And you pretty much need a very, very solid four by four vehicle. Um, and even then, I've had friends that have run it that they've had Subarus that got stranded out there that got stuck. And when you're out there in the middle of the Mojave desert, there's not really like it, it takes hours for someone to for a tow truck to come. And so I just didn't want to take that risk. And I felt like for me as an athlete, as a person, I was like, um, you know, running further like that didn't bother me. I finished Kokodona thinking like, you know, I actually felt pretty good considering that I ran 250 miles. And so I. Um, I, I kind of was excited to take on that kind of challenge. And so into the fall was really when I started focusing on my training. Um, I ran a race called the Tesla Hertz 157 mile. People will call it 100, 150 mile. Um, it's in Long Island um, around a trail, that a sand, sandy trail. Uh, you do like a 10 and a half mile loop over and over again. Um, great community. It's put on by um, a race organizi- organization called Happily Running. And um, it was my like test, real race test to see, um, you know, iron out some things before leaning into the speed project. And I had a very, very solid uh, running out there. Uh, I finished, I think it was like 31 hours or so. Um, at one point, which was crazy was I went out pretty aggressive and pretty fast. And I was on a pace where I was like, if I can keep this up, like I could qualify for the USA 24 hour team. And those people run onto the track and I'm doing this on this like windy, like Sandy, like roly poly trail. And I didn't get that. I didn't get the mark. I was, but I was still close. And that gave just gave me a lot of confidence of saying like, okay, like I, I have, you know, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right frame of mind. My nutrition is good. Um, I'm doing things going about things the right way. Uh, now I just have to continue to improve upon that. So um, that's pretty much what I did. I was hoping to run um, another snowshoe race, uh, like a hundred miles on snowshoe kind of thing. I did that for Cocodona and that worked out really, really well. Um, and unfortunately, there just was not enough snow to to partake in that respective event. So um, I ran a fifty k in January as my tune up before running the speed project. So. I, I looked at things as feeling trying to be as like fresh as possible, um, and I didn't really overanalyze anything. I'm not someone that's like, oh, if I didn't hit this workout, like I'm not going to do well. Um, I I I go back onto like the cumulative miles that I've put on, you know, from when you first saw me to now. Like I've been very much injury free, which is a great thing. You know, I've I've I feel like I've gone about my training the right way, and I've just continued to improve and learn. Uh, both in training, but also in like my race, nutrition, sleeping, all that stuff. When it comes to, when it comes to training, um,
0: some athletes really lean in on the analytics, right? Um, other athletes tend to go by feel, um, of course with, with modern GPS technology and the, um, you know, the, 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 the data platforms that these, uh, that these GPS uh, devices uh, are supported by. It's really easy, you know, to to have all the all of your metrics, all of your analytics as it relates to your training, right there uh, at your fingertips. Are you a guy that likes to look at the at the metrics and the analytics, or do you is your training more more based on
1: feel or some
0: combination of those two things?
1: So I at this point now. I still pretty much train on feel. So like I rarely, I like, I might look at my watch every so often, but I don't like focus on like, oh, I have to run this pace or that pace. I just kind of let my body and kind of mind dictate how I'm feeling on that day. Um, I have obviously certain like ways that I kind of do like different workouts or pace, pace changes and that kind of stuff. But I, I look at my, I use my GPS more as like a, a way to like check in to make sure that I'm kind of like on track without being like, oh, I I didn't hit this mile split by two seconds. Like doesn't to me that doesn't matter. Um I do look more at like the after effects. So uh, when I upload a training run, I'll look and kind of see if there's any patterns across some of the different metrics, you know, my stride lengths, my my running power, my, you know, all, all those different metrics, and just see kind of um, you know, if there's any any things that like oh that's interesting why was that lower than than this other run when i ran the same route kind of thing and just kind of you know play the the scientist kind of cap um but i don't really fixate or focus too much on those things um Mm -hmm. i do try to run a lot of uh of uh, hills as much as i can just for time's sake i do run a lot more on roads than i do on trails um and I do that just for also like integrity too. in, you know, where we live in new England, there's a lot of trails where, uh, unless I'm running a very technical trail race, I don't, I I don't want to take the risk of having to run a very technical trail and twist an ankle and then be out for the rest of the year. So uh, I do run trails, but they're usually a little bit more on the tamer side um, unless I need that more specificity. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, specificity, I think is the key word, right? The the principle is the,
0: is the said principle specific adaptation to impose demand as a coach for me, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm creating training camps for, uh, for, for athletes specifically ultra runners, what we attempt to do at least once a week is to simulate the, the course conditions of the event that they're training for the, the surface, the terrain, um, uh the specific pacing that they're going to need uh right to 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 execute if it's a if it's a lapped race um which you know many ultras now are lapped uh races uh you know last man standing uh you know example of the of a lapped race we want to make sure that the course that they're training on is a lap course because as you know as an ultra runner (laughs) a big mental component to, to running, you know, four mile loops for, you know, 200 miles versus, you know, a point to point 200 mile race. Right. Um, and so, and so I think you can train that mental side, uh, of, of, of ultra running as well. So I, I think specificity is really, really key. Um, so you, you mentioned stride length and, 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 and cadence. Of course, I, both of those things can, both of those bits of data can be accessed with, you know, a typical GPS device, although there are now, um, you know, cadence sensors that, uh, pair with GPS enabled devices, just from a, from a technology standpoint, Cole, what, what do you use for a GPS enabled device? And do you use, uh, a, a additional peripherals, uh, like a cadence sensor?
1: No, I haven't used any kind of cadence sensors or anything like that. Um, in terms of GPS I've used, um, I mean, I've used, like, the whole – all the different types of brands, Garmin, Suunto. Right now, I've been running with the different Coros watches just for the battery life element. Um, And uh, I'm also not super tech savvy when it comes to watches. So, like, I like Coros just for that simplicity. Uh, You know, once I set it up, it's like, oh, everything is easily uploaded, all that stuff. Um, And so, um, yeah, I – you know, for me, a lot of my training has been – I I truly believe that you got to train your mental side and and I'm starting to realize, I think more so than the physical side. Um, I think the physical side, obviously you got to have physical fitness, but like, I think where I've started to excel as an athlete has been because I've done things that I didn't realize were uh, really like keys to increasing performance. Um, Just, you know, uh, just the way I would kind of almost like meditate on runs and just like focus on just trying to run as relaxed as possible in terms of just running efficiency and economy. So like the way that I would train for like a, a 50 mile race is I would go out and I would run my goal pace and I would try to make that goal pace as effortless as possible. Um, and no matter what terrain, right. So whether it's up, up hills, up mountains, down this or that, um, the goal was just to almost be like this human metronome that could just, you know, eke out that, that performance, because, you know, when you can kind of almost like detach your mind from really having to like, like really worry and think and just kind of like, just act and do. Um, I think it just allows for you to pull out that perform, that top performance easier. Um, and so I had always been doing that, um, you know, without even realizing that that was something that a lot of people don't, don't do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of, it morphed into a strong suit of mine, kind of this, uh, this special specialized, uh, you know, King Arthur's sword kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it's been able to, I think, become more present in these longer distances where truly the mental is much more of, um, you know, where you separate yourself from being kind of a record record breaker or kind of someone that just completes the distance kind of thing. Yeah. And I also think too, as, um, as elite
0: athletes are continually looking for an edge, uh, right. Whether that's, whether that's an edge over their fellow competitors or an edge as they're working toward, uh, setting new course records. Um, you know, certainly the, the mental side of the sport, right. Is a, is is a, is a, is a, is a next level performance variable and increasingly, uh, sleep, as an important uh performance uh variable is, has received uh more and more attention uh, of course nowadays um it, it's uh it's much easier easier than it ever was um, to collect sleep data we mentioned gps enabled devices uh, i'm sure the coros that you use if you wear it to bed uh has the functionality to be able to collect sleep data Uh, I use a, I use a whoop band, the whoop 4.0, uh, to, to collect my sleep data. In fact, um, uh, for anyone who's interested, uh, and is a, is a whoop user would be interested in this article. There's actually an article, um, um, that was published by whoop. Um, uh, and it's the, it's the data associated with two athletes who, uh, ran the speed project uh, and their and their their strain and, and 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 recovery and HR HRV heart rate variability, um, and their 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 sleep data would what, what little sleep they got. All that data was collected and it's presented in this really cool article uh, on the Whoop website, sp- again, specifically about the sleep project as it relates to sleep, um, uh, the, the speed project, not the sleep project. I'm sure at times you wished it was the sleep project. But the <laughs> <Definitely>. project. <laughs> um, it, you know, in, in again, in, in, in terms of in terms of looking for that edge, Cole, um, how closely do you look at or, or do you look at sleep data? How important uh, is restorative
1: sleep for you? Um, very important. So I, luckily I, I would say that I have good genetics on my father's side, everyone in my father's side, they, everyone sleeps like a rock. Um, and so I think I've picked that up. Um, I've always been someone that could sleep in some of the most, uh, you know, difficult kind of environments or situations. And I think that definitely helps when it comes to these longer events where, you know, if you're not able to get, you know, you want to try and get as much restorative sleep as you can without feeling like groggy and stuff. And for me, like I can pretty much, you know, be able to tap into that, I think. Um, And that's a huge advantage, Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I totally think that for me, uh, when I first kind of got into the sport, I was much more of a mental head case. Like when you talked about the word catastrophize, um, you know, I was, uh, a very, very solid athlete, but when it came to stress or pressure with competition, I would oftentimes fold when things weren't going exactly how I planned. Rather than trying to find solutions, I would, uh, you know, again, catastrophize and kind of like be my own own worst enemy. And part of that was that I, in being grad school life and everything, juggling uh, all these different responsibilities, I just didn't really value sleep. And so I came into all these races like half asleep and it's a miracle that I even finished the way that I did. I look back on, on the, all these results that I have and I'm like that one, I, sh- that, that, that third place was hard earned because I should not have run that well. And um, I think, you know, now for me having a little bit more work-life work-life balance a little bit being a little bit older, a little bit more kind of set in terms of kind of like um, my home nucleus and kind of what we have going on in our lives. Um, it's allowed me to prioritize sleep a little bit more. And I mean, the performances at this point speak for themselves. I mean, I'm able to recover better. Um, I'm able to perform better. I'm just in a better mood, even throughout a race. I don't have as much highs and lows of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, so ultimately I can't speak more highly of sleep. I think it's, it, it, should be valued by people. And especially when it, you're doing these longer events, anything beyond hundred miles, I feel like um, you get to a point where like, you have to now factor in sleep as, as one other variable or element to the performance. And, um, you know, you just have to make sure that, that you have, uh, you're able to build that in. Like for me, the, uh, I'm not gonna go into too much detail with in leading into the speed project of how my, that run went but I will say that I slept more in the speed project than I have in any of my other longer distance races. And I feel like I performed better as a result of that. So I think there's a fine line between how much sleep and how much you shouldn't. But when you hear these athletes that are like running 200 miles, but only taking like these, what they call it, dirt naps or trail naps, I don't think it's sustainable, especially long-term. And, and I'm starting to realize that taking a little bit more time, um, when you're doing it strategically i think will lend itself to paying more you know better results um overall
0: yeah i i i think your experience certainly certainly speaks to that um and that's you know that the the within competition um uh restorative sleep angle that's a that's a that's a sort of a um it's uncharted territory there right because um, I, I think specifically because we now have the capability to collect sleep data to analyze sleep data. Uh, I mean we we've all slept. Uh, as you know as long as humans have been humans we've been we've been sleeping and so that's not the, that's not the new part and you know ultra runners have been sleeping in long distance ultra races for as long as there have been ultra long ultra distance races but the ability to actually understand restorative sleep within race i think i, I think is is a is absolutely a, a, a burgeoning field well let me let me ask you this i'm looking at a photo and it's a photo of you um, standing on the uh, Santa Monica Pier, uh, and uh, it looks like you—you've uh, got a—you've got a, you've got a, a yellow uh, windbreaker um, on. You've got a—you got your—you got a trucker hat turned backwards. You got a headlamp on your on your head. You got your—you got your hydration vest. Uh, you got a crazy pair of almost look like Hawaiian board shorts on. Uh oh, yeah. Your 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 left knee is KT taped. Uh and you got a buff around your neck. And you have a very, I mean, I I think that's you. Um, you've you you've got your you got your Hoka 11s on. You'll I'm sure you know what model they are. I just know they're Hokas because it says Hoka on them. And uh you've I don't know, you almost have this. I'm gonna call it pensive. You get this 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 pensive look on your face, like this this like this anticipation that you're about to do something epic, but it also it also almost looks like you're just a wee bit terrified by the whole thing. I don't know, Cole. You get us in your headspace there. What are you thinking as you're standing on the Santa Monica Pier, three hundred and forty-six miles away from Las Vegas? What are you thinking?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, so from, in terms of mental approach, right? Like, uh, yes, I, I like to lead on that. I'm like stressed and all worrying and stuff, but ultimately I think in order to get the most out of yourself, you have to feel determined and feel confident in yourself and feel confident in your crew and uh, just go back to all the times where like, you didn't want to go for that, that run at like 8 PM or whatever, and it's dark and cold in the winter time. And you throw on all your lights and stuff and you just get it done and you finish it and you're like, okay, like, I'm glad that I did that. And I, I just go back to all those moments of adversity that I've been training and preparation leading into this and lean on that and say like, Hey, I've, I'm ready. I've been ready. I've been running my whole life. Like every single mile, every single step that I've taken has led to this moment. And this, this race isn't the end point. It's just another point in this journey. Right. And so, um, so, yeah, of course, I like to I like to be like, oh, it's it's scary, you know, and people I think people uh, I feed into that because people will say like, oh, you've run 250 miles. Well, what expect how do you think how do you imagine yourself being able to do 90 mile, more 90 more miles? And I'm, I'm I've am i learned that I think it's a mental approach. I don't fixate on the, the big number. I break things down into small chunks and. I really live, as you said, Chris, you live in the moment. When you live in the moment, it just, what happens is those moments build and stack upon themselves. And then before you know it, like you're down to a number that's so manageable that you're just like, oh, I do this run every, this amount of distance every day. I can do this. Um, and uh, that's really the way to accomplish these big numbers. Um, if you look at it and say, say you've, you've run 10 miles and you're like, Oh my goodness, I have 330 some odd miles left to go. I'm not, ne- I'm not feeling good. I'm never going to get this done. What you're saying is you're already like waving the white flag. You're already accepting defeat and you haven't even, you haven't really even gotten going. Um, I mean, you're running for days and so each day is a new day. And no matter how that, if that first day is a totally crappy day, there's always opportunities to turn things around. Um, For those of you that were watching the Cocodona live stream this year, um, someone that I ran with at Cocodona's name is uh, Mike McKnight, a.k.a. the low carb runner. This guy, he's had Cocodona's been his like Achilles heel. Um, He was like in like 70th place early on. People were totally saying he's not going to even finish. He's going to drop out. He ends up winning the thing. His, his crew got him, got him going, turned his turned his whole mindset around and off he went and he pulled off, you know, an incredible comeback. And so that to me is why I love running these longer distances because, um, if you, you're never out of it until, until you're done, like just be you're, you're in the, in the game, you're in the, in, in the ring, just keep on playing, keep on trying to move forward. And you're going to get there one way or, the, or another. If you're walking backwards, you're not going to get there. You're going to go the <laughs> other direction. Right. But if you're moving forwards, you, each, each step is like a, a mini victory in, in of itself. So, um, so yeah. So, you know, I was excited. I was like, I felt ready. I was like, let's do this. I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw down, I'm going to put together the best performance that I've ever done before. um, In a, in an ultra, uh, you know, this, these next few days are going to be my, my days. And um, I just gave myself that mental uh, pep talk and, you know, we went for it. And I will say that right off the bat, even leading into the race, things weren't going perfect. Like, we scrambled to like get our, our supplies and groceries. I kind of like shoved food at like a time that I knew wasn't the best time. And I ate hotel pizza that I didn't think was going to be the best to agree with me. I love pizza. That's usually my pre-race thing. And I, I will say I had GI distress for the first 30, 40 miles. I could have easily have been like, Oh, everything's going wrong. But I just told myself, well, okay, I, I, I know how to deal with this. This has happened to me before I'm going to work through it. Um, I'm going to continue to take the nutrition. I know I I've trained with that. I feel comfortable with, and I'm just going to have to take more bathroom pit stops. Okay. Big deal. Like it's not, it's not the end of the world. And it wasn't, and really because I didn't fixate on it, it never became a problem. I mean, heck my, my crew didn't even know that this was an issue until I told them, you know, a week or two after. So, all
0: right. So. So now I know your your determined look sometimes looks pensive. It determined. Now that you say determined, now I'm seeing determination on your face as I'm relooking at the photo. All right, determined. It's all in the eyes. Yeah, I, I get it. Well, it's a side view. I can only see one of your eyes. All right. So, um, <laughs> all right. So, but before we before we talk about day one, um, uh, you mentioned your crew. This is a good time for you to to shout out to your crew because um, they, you know any ultra runner knows that, um, uh, that, that, that their success is directly tied to the performance of their crew and their, uh, you know, your, your, your crew was in it, you know, all 92 hours as well. Plus, um, shout out to your
1: crew. Yeah, we had a all, all female crew, um, led by my amazing wife, uh, Ashley Pruitt Crosby, the crew, the, the AKA, the crew boss, the, the real OG. Um, and then we had two of our friends who had never crewed, uh, any kind of races, any kind of running races before ever. Um, one of them being, um, DeSandra, who, uh, she, we, uh, a friend of ours from New York city. Um, she, I, I called her kind of the navigator because she, she was one that I would consult with for, um, kind of what, what the next route or next section of the the run was going to be. So every time I went to the RV and I completed a checkpoint, I would say, what am I going to see on this next, the next route? So we would review quickly. And, um, and then I had, um, uh, Kelsey who, um, I kind of called like the storyteller, like she, uh, has an advertising background and, uh, professionally, and, and she was just great with kind of like one adding some fun, uh, comedy and humor, uh, to the crew and, uh, you know, helped along with Ashley and DeSandra kind of help document and take photos. She, she did a lot with Mike, my, my, my Instagram and like doing like the little, um, kind of reels and videos and all that kind of stuff. So, um, we had a dynamic, a, a small by dy- dynamic team, and I'm truly grateful for them. Uh, cause I wouldn't have been able to complete it without them. And ultimately Chris, that's why I do these longer events as well as that. Uh, I want to show people that the crew is just as important as the runner. And I don't think that media portrays that. And so um, I will say that my wife is actually um, creating a startup business that is uh, geared towards uh, putting crew in the spotlight Um, that was inspired from this whole uh, experience that we had at the speed project called the K called chaos crewing company. And, uh, and yeah, so you'll, maybe people will see more of that here in the future, but definitely, I think the crew, uh, makes all the difference. Yeah.
0: hundred percent. In fact, I, I did a podcast with a client of mine, um, who, um, um uh, who went to Iowa to race the Hitchcock experience, the hundred miler there in, uh, in Iowa. And, uh, I had, I had Tyler uh, and his his crew leader Jenny, uh, I had them on 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 the show, and we and we talked about the interaction between we well we we talked about both of their experiences Tyler's experience as the as the athlete and Jenny's experience uh, as the crew leader. It was fascinating um, uh, the 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 interaction between the two of them and the the collaboration uh, and and how incredibly important uh, uh, Jenny was ultimately to Tyler's success. This obviously sounds very, very similar to that. All right. Well, let's, let's break this, let's break this 346 miles down. Let me ask you this. Let me ask this, this this question. As we talk about day one, um, as you, as you, as you sort of did your logistic planning and we're thinking about, you know, how am I going to do this 346 miles, right? Um, I mean, you, you, you probably figured you weren't going to be able to run it in one fell swoop, right? So you're going to have to chunk it up. Um, what did day one, what in the planning stages, what did day one look like to you? We'll talk about what day one actually was, but what what did day one look like uh, in terms of planning? What did, you, what did you have planned for day one?
1: Yeah, and day one was probably the hardest for planning just for the sake that um, you have to get out of Los Angeles. And it's a Monday. And even though we start at four in the morning and it's really early, um, there's still, you know, you're not just going to be outside of Los Angeles in the first hour. And so there's a process of that. And so definitely, I think, you know, we had a huge class A RV um, that my my crew was uh, utilizing and driving for this this event. And if anyone that knows about Los Angeles, I mean, the traffic can be very bad. And so we had to be very cautious in terms of like, uh, you know, I carried more supplies on me just in case if I couldn't, if my crew wasn't able to meet me at certain checkpoints that we had. Um, and so that was kind of, we had to create those contingency plans and say like, this is a checkpoint where you're at a gas station. It should be, it's off the interstate, it should be easily accessible. This is one that in terms of the distance, I will probably need you to be here at. These other ones earlier on, maybe not so much. So. If you can be at them, great. If not, don't worry about it. Go to the next one. Um, so that's kind of how we approached kind of at least the first, uh, I would say the first half of day one. Did you, uh, in terms of the planning, did you have,
0: did you have an end point for day one? Did you have a, did you, did you, did you have a, a town you wanted to get to, or you were just going to like what, in terms of planning, what were you going to just go as far as you could go until you felt like you needed to take a break is, was that, was that the, was that the thought, um, for, for day one or did you actually have a, actually have a, a distance or a town you wanted to get to?
1: Yeah. So I would say, um, I, I had done more of that for coca And what I've realized is that when you really try to logistically plan this stuff out for the longer events, like the race starts and everything goes out, out the window. <laughs> and so, um, so I, we plan things based on guidelines, kind of like my, my, I set like the gold standard, like this, uh, this is a world, a world beating performance would be if I could average hundred miles each day, like out of anything that I've watched in ter- or, or seen in terms of other races of comparable distances. Um, you know, if you can be in that like 90 to hundred mile per day range, that is like the cream of the crop That is like that is like a, a role beating performance. So I looked at that as kind of like a model and said, if I can be anywhere near that, then I'm going to have a, one heck of a performance. And so um, so that was one one metric. The other metric was really the sleeping aspect. Um, one of the things that I did was I wanted to break things down into two halves, so uh, 12, two, two 12-hour blocks. Um, and the way that we did this was I would uh, I would sleep so we had ten hours of movement so I'd run for ten hours and then two hours of rest time. The rest time would include any time that I spent in the RV getting food, using the bathroom, or just stoppage time. Um, and uh, usually, either Kelsey or DeSandra would kind of like um, write down like my my time in and the time out, and we would take that, add it up, and then subtract it at the end of that. Near near ten hour period to where I was gonna take a nap, whatever the remainder was was what I would sleep, and so I did really really well. Um, You know, the first definitely the first day, even the first like two days. I mean, my stoppage time was like literally like under ten minutes kind of thing, like very minimal. Um, And that was a huge goal of mine for this speed project. Coca Dona, I wasted a lot of time, and I wanted to change that, and so um, yeah, that was kind of the main, the main kind of plans, uh, which I thought were, were really great. It was a matter of just like, I mean, it's also uncharted territory. So it's like where, where I stop, we stop and then we'll keep going. Um, so yeah, yeah that's yeah, how that's, we broke it down.
0: That, yeah. It's a fascinating way to look at it. Um, I just, just from a, a, a pure simplicity standpoint, um, or a, a real granular standpoint, um, how did you know where you were going? (laughs) Obviously it's, it's it's not a marked, not a marked route. Uh, how how do you know when you got to take a left-hand turn on, you know, on Elm street or what, how did you know when, how'd you know where to go?
1: So I had, I had two things. So I had the, um, the map of the course uploaded to my watch. Um, and I also had it on my phone, um, through a different, different app, like a Gaia or something like that. So I was able to kind of, course correct and kind of catch things as I was going along so the watch would like beep and say like oh you're off by 300 feet and I would look at my phone and be like uh I think the watch no I'm still kind of on course I'm just maybe a little bit off from where it it thinks it wants me to be um and so that's what I I mean I had done something like that with New Jersey kind of like having turn by turn directions and following that through my phone so it wasn't something unfamiliar to me um I'm also one that i do get turned around and can get lost and stuff. So like, I'm not afraid to make those mistakes. I, I, I've gotten better at like being able to, when something like that happens, not go too far down the road or down the trail, kind of, you know, course correct quickly. So, so yeah, that's how we, that's how I navigated. Um, You know, I didn't, it really, what's what was nice about the way the route was, was that it was a very logical route. It wasn't overcomplicated. It was pretty much like, especially as you get further out, it's like, follow this road for 30 miles, you know, it's like a straight never ending road. So the amount of turns were minimal. Obviously, it's much harder when you're going through Los Angeles. And that's where I had the most like anxiety. Um, but once I kind of once you get out of the city, um, it gets it's kind of like the the way the route goes, it gets easier and easier in terms of navigation, um, though. I feel like it was like a video game and it got, gets harder and harder through each each level as you go up in distance.
0: <laughs> kind of true. And uh, there were a fair amount of ATV trails, which uh, can be like a maze in the desert as well. well. Talk about those in just a moment. All right. So uh, so for the listener who is like, come on, Chris, just get, get to the actual facts. Like how far did how far did Cole run? <laughs> um, you, you, cause that's what people, I mean, that's what, that's what people, that's what people are interested in. I'm interested in, in knowing some of the backstory, but, um, all right. So, uh, so the facts, you ran 122 miles in tw- in that first 24 hours. Yeah. fact. Yeah. That's a fact, right? Um, hundred. All right. Just let that wash over people for a moment. 122 miles in 24 hours. Yeah. It went fast. Um, that, that was, uh, more aggressive crazy. than I expected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So part of you has got to be thinking, all right, well, I banked some pretty valuable time. And at the same time, the, the other, the other, the other thought on the other shoulder is, man, you might have just put yourself deep in the hurt locker. Like, you know, sometimes, right. But some, but sometimes you can, I mean, anyone that's run a marathon has, you know, has, uh, most people that have run a marathon have made that mistake road marathons just gone out too hard and excitement and trying to bank time and then you know after 20 miles they just completely implode because you can't you just can't actively recover ultra marathoning is obviously a little bit different so so which side did you fall down on were you were you stoked that you had put a little put a little bit more distance behind you or were you a little bit uh a, a little bit hesitant a little bit concerned that you might have gone out too
1: hard i'm glad we're talking about this so um you know obviously it's a the the speed project is it's it's bigger than just a competition in a race uh i mean i was the only solo runner to run this this route so i didn't expect to see anybody uh everyone else was doing their own thing and what was crazy to me was that um uh, it's maybe like 20 or maybe like 30 miles in i ended up linking up with runners and and I was kind of like, oh, this is good. And and I did plan to go out a little bit aggressive. And part of that was analyzing the route that most runners would take and the route that I would take. And I realized that because, you know, I'm, I pretty much I'm giving them a handicap, right? I'm giving them 50 miles um, that I have to make up. And so I'm like, I want to make this interesting. I don't know if I can finish higher up in the ranks um, with this type of distance. I don't even know if it's possible, but we're going to try. And so I thought, you know what? I think that I have the capabilities to go out a little bit more aggressive and I know what my threshold and limits are with that. And so I pushed that boundary just to the max without overdoing it. And uh you know, I think I went through 100 miles, I don't know, like in the 17 hour range somewhere. Um and I was it, I built I drew confidence for me. I was like how many runners can run 17 17 uh, hour 100 miler and then continue to go on for another 246 miles you know um and with minimal stopping and um i I just knew that i was like you know as that day went on i was like gaining more and more confidence as i'm seeing more of these runners and i would ask some of them like hey what does your watch say and i'm like okay I'm, i'm ahead by like seven miles or i'm ahead by 10 miles or 12 miles or whatever and i'm like hmm okay that's my cushion i'm like all right nice nice and um it was just after that i was like it just gave me a lot you know it just it made it more fun in a way i was like oh i can't believe this i didn't even think this was even going to be plausible and it's kind of happening before our eyes and i'm like this is fun this is different you know so i i enjoyed it i you know i uh i thought that it was it was setting the stage obviously i knew i was going to slow down uh i wasn't going to be able to run 122 miles each day uh i mean unless i was like a bionic man Um, but you know, it, it, again, it's a way to build confidence too. It's like, you know, I can do that and still, still be consistent, even though I'm maybe not at running as much as 122 each day. Hmm.
0: Well, day two, um, you, you, you did slow down a little bit. However, at the end of day two, you were actually ahead of your hundred mile a day, sort of average, right? Because on day 2, you ran 87 miles in 24 hours. Um and and day 2 also uh also included a significant section of ATV trail. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that.
1: So, um thing the thing that was unique about the Speed Project Speed Project this year for the solo runners especially was that um there was just crazy crazy weather. Um, weather that you would not expect, you normally expect it's the Mojave desert. You would expect it never rains there. It's really dry. It's hot. And what we had was, uh, there was like all those, uh, crazy, like thunderstorms and rain, rainstorms and like mudslides and stuff in other parts of Northern California. And for, for us down kind of in Southern California, I mean, we had, it was, ra- it was misting and raining when I first started the speed project. We had crazy storms that were blowing around, windstorms and like rain and stuff uh, on night one. Night, um, the ATV section, um, we ended up, so I was like running on this Roko Yermo road. And uh, there was like, it's, it's a, I mean, the environment is so unreal there. Like, literally no trees. You have just these like big, huge rain clouds that are ready to like just dump and pour rain on you. And I could feel the updraft and everything. And I was just literally running from a massive, massive rain, uh, thunderstorm. And I was like two miles out from my crew and I'm calling them. I'm panicking. Cause I'm like, I didn't bring rain gear. This is going to suck. And I sprinted in and made it just in time before it downpoured. And we decided to take a longer nap. We wanted to wait out the storm because at that point, the thing that happens out there is that when it, when it rains, it pours and, and in terms of drainage, like those ATV trails would be, could be completely impassable. And so we wanted to, you know, the number one rule in the speed project is safety. Um, and so I didn't want to do anything that was going to one jeopardize myself, jeopardize my crew. This was the ATV sections to me were like the crux of this whole thing, because it was one of the few times I was going to have to run alone by myself. And I had already done some ATV, uh, an ATV trail section earlier, and it was brutal. 70, 70 mile an hour headwinds. And like, I got like a little bit turned around and like, it was just, it took way longer than it should have. Um, it took like double the amount of time. So an eight mile stretch, it normally would have taken me, uh, I don't know, like say like an hour and a half or something. It took like three hours. Right. Um, And, and so we didn't want to take any chances. So we uh, had a family dinner, delicious penne pasta and some other things. And then uh, I just lied down for for a nap just to wait out the storm. I think we slept for maybe like two, two to two and a half hours. Um, So more, more than what I allotted in terms of the time. Uh, But, you know, we didn't want to take any chances. Um, And I will say when we came out of it, hardly even rained on the, on the trail. So we, we ended up lucking out the storm actually kind of it kind of hit momentarily and then kind of swirled away in terms of the heavy rain. I'm sure some of the other runners that ran the, the other, the other routes ended up getting the brunt of that storm. So. Mm-hmm.
0: um, Well, day three uh, started interestingly enough uh, in a little town uh, known mm-hmm. as Dun California. Um, Uh, um, Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Dunn, California. And in fact, about 20 miles or so to the east of Dunn, California, there's a little town called Baker, California. And in Mm -hmm. Baker, California, Baker, California population, I think 700 and something people. um, Baker, California is home to the world's tallest thermometer. Yeah, I saw it. That's right. It's 134 feet high. Do you know why it's 134 feet high, Cole Crosby? No idea. Because the highest recorded temperature on Earth is 134 degrees. And Cole, do you know where do you know where the highest recorded temperature on Earth is or was? Do you know where that location is? I
1: mean, I know I know Badwater Basin. Well, um it's actually
0: yes, in that in that neck of the woods, technically in a little town called Furnace Creek. Right? Uh-huh, Furnace yeah. Creek, which is just north of of Baker, California. You're actually very very close to it. Um and I w- I want to say uh it was 1913. Um, uh, that area of California experienced, uh, I mean, obviously a very significant heat wave and the highest recorded temperature on earth was recorded there in Furnace Creek in 1913, 134 degrees. So uh, it, interesting. You earlier, you, you mentioned Mount Washington and the, and the worst mm-hmm. weather on the planet. Um, and typically when we, when we, those of us in, in, in New England, uh, we talk about the the worst weather, uh, on the, on the planet. We're not talking about 134 degrees on the summit of Mount Washington. We're talking about, you know, 200 mile an hour winds and, and, and wind chills, you know, uh, 100, uh, 110 degrees below zero. Um, you, 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 you have actually raced, um, you know, arguably, um uh in an area which is described as the worst weather on on earth at the top of mount washington and also through death valley because day three was death valley uh death valley section day three 72 miles in in 24 hours
1: uh cole what what was it like running through death valley yeah it was tough so as I said, like a video game, it progressively got harder. So the ATV section worried me because it, I was by myself. It's sandy. Um, you know, it's it's I did it I had to do it at nighttime. Um, the trails I found were easier to follow than I thought. But, you, you know, when you're out there by yourself, I was looking at my phone the whole time, looking at the the screenshot of like go point five miles and then keep going straight or like veer slightly to the right. Like the directions weren't so clear cut. And so when I, when we kind of got through that whole section and we're kind of, we're hanging out and done, that's when the sun started coming up, I was like, Oh, like, Oh man, like we accomplished so much. Like, I felt like, um, the rest was just going to be kind of like, um, a running party to Vegas. I felt like we were almost at the home stretch Baker kind of signified this like home stretch. Um, and boy, was I wrong, (laughs) boy, was I wrong? I mean, um, So I would say, um, it definitely, uh, you could definitely feel the intensity of the sun. I wouldn't say that it was as hot as like 134 degrees it's, it's March. And so, uh, temperature, air temperature wise, it was nice. It was probably in the, I think the thermometer said close to 80 degrees, maybe 70, 80, but man, that sun, I mean, it just like, it just cooks you. Um, and obviously all the stretches are exposed. Uh, As soon as we kind of ran on what's called, um, I think it's called Death Valley Road, Um, and that was like a long, 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 like forty-eight mile stretch in in terms of on the uh, the OG route map, and uh, it was just it was weird because I noticed uh, when trucks and cars would go by, like you wouldn't feel that rush of wind that you normally would feel, and it's because it's you know this is like one of the driest environments in the world, and Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was learning how to, uh, you know, I was running in kind of the beginning of the heat of the day. So starting from say nine, 10 in the morning, all the way throughout. And so, you know, I was in those tough sections with the sun baking on you and there wasn't, there wasn't any storms or anything like that. So it was just like, it was true, like a bad water experience. Um, And with, you know, you don't, you can't sweat out there, right? So, like, you you hardly even notice that you're sweating, if at all. And so, I had a real struggle in the beginning trying to figure out, like, and I was telling this to my crew, I got to figure out how to get my electrolytes, but also my water, kind of keep things balanced. Because if I'm over on one too much, like, that could derail the whole thing. And, uh, we did pretty well for a while, you know. The crew, I think, was getting a little bit tired, so we, you know, each crew member was getting some 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 napping napping time, and I um I pushed as long as I could. I was slow. I felt I was running a little bit slower. I was about a minute per mile slower with the same effort, and I was like, maybe it's the environment. I don't know. Um, eventually, I had to take kind of more of a nap that I didn't plan for. I was just I was getting exhausted, baked into the sun, you know, and. Um, even wearing long sleeves and all that stuff, I mean, uh, that exposure wears on you and, uh, you know, it kind of broke me down a little bit. And, uh, but at the same time, Chris, I have to say that that environment never being to death Valley before, I mean, I would recommend anyone to go there. It's one of the most, uh, awe-inspiring places that I've ever visited or been to in the world. And I think one of the things that allowed me to have a great performance at the speed project was that. Uh, I drew a lot of inspiration from the environment. Um, I think in a way it was like the, the environment was kind of like testing us to see if we were like worthy enough to be like in the, the, you know, the environment wanted wanted us to be like a part of the family. And it was like, hey, it's not so easy. You got to go through the trials before we allow you to be a part of us. And um, this was a section that was like, yeah, let's, let's see what you're made of. <laughs> So pretty wild, but it was, it was cool. It was really cool. Yeah.
0: The sort of literal trial by fire. Um, Well, day three uh, or day four dawns, it won't be a complete day um, because uh, Mm -hmm. uh, 20 hours uh, into the final day, um, you would uh, reach Las Vegas. So, uh, so what you describe as day 3.75, um, right. Uh, three quarters of the, of, of, the final day, uh, you would cover 65 miles in 20 hours, uh, and you would arrive, uh, on the Vegas strip. Um, mm-hmm. but <laughs> not, not without one final, uh, sort of, uh, hill to overcome, right. Uh,
1: both, both literal and and figurative right yeah well even before that i gotta say so the night three um so you know we go through death valley all this stuff there's there's some great pictures that um kelsey sandra ashley took uh where i was like running down the middle of the road and it was like so peaceful and quiet and like when i meditate and like go to those like peaceful places like that's this place that i want to go to because like we were the only living things for miles upon miles to your left was like going out towards like the real Death Valley, like the real national park. And it was like, there was like storm clouds rolling in. We had, there was a rainbow that we saw. It was just like, it was the most, it was really like the most incredible visual sight that I've ever experienced. And it was the calm before the storm in all actuality, because after that, we saw that there's a 700 foot climb in our booklet. It turned out that it was way more than that. The heavens opened up, chaos ensued, cars, all of a sudden cars and trucks are speeding by almost, almost clipping me at 80 miles an hour. And I'm like, it goes from no cars for like, for hours to all of a sudden this, this true chaos, it's pouring, pounding rain. I'm going up this hill and never ends. And it was really, uh, as a, as a group, as a unit, we were at a breaking point. It was like the real crux of this whole thing. And, um, that's where, you know, we regrouped. And uh, my crew was exhausted. I was exhausted, um, but I I just once I we a state trooper came, told us exactly how far we had to go. I was like, I felt much better mentally. I was like, okay, now I know that I'm not just endlessly running up this mountain, I thought was a hill. And of course, it, it when it's dark out there, you can't see anything. And so, I kept pushing up that. Then we come on this downhill, and then we end up in this little town that uh, there's actually hot springs and a brewery. But we slept at this uh uh it was like a a church and then also like a post office and that was like the only two things that were there um so i think it's called like Tacopa t- or something like that and um we rested there and we're like okay we're, this is like i'm i want to i want to be woken up like just as the sun's coming up and get that energy and so it was like, I don't know, it, it's it, for, for us as a crew it was probably one of the most empowering moments of this whole trip to where we're blasting killers music and um, the sun's coming up and I'm suiting up. I mean, my breakfast and we do like a little team kind of like, let's go team one, two, three team kind of thing. You know, we put your hands together and uh, I told everyone this is the day like see the sunrise. We're not going to see another sunrise until we're done with this thing. Like. And I don't know. I think for us, we had been through so much. And even as the crew, like they got the RV stuck in the middle of Death Valley, and like had to like get it off of a sand dune while backing up traffic. And like when they were, when I was out running, they ended up hitting a tree when they were doing actually an Instagram live video. And no damage to the RV. We had issues with crazy wind and windstorms, and like uh, you know, it was just there. The list goes on and on and on. And so. We All of us were, were tested and, and went through these trials. And that last day was really kind of like this moment of like, I think us in a way feeling the, the level of acceptance of uh, one, that we're going to accomplish this task and two, that we we can get through anything. And in a way, I almost at that moment felt like the most connected to this environment, like this environment, like the, the whole last day was so perfect. The weather was so beautiful. It was so perfect. Um, it was like, kind of like, okay, like, here's your reward for putting, putting up with us for this whole entire journey, which, uh, was, you know, just completely life-changing, totally incredible. And, um, that next, next section or route, Chris was, uh, some of the coolest stuff too. I mean, like another climb happened. Um, and then once you, once I got to the top, it was like, uh, almost like the, like the Serengeti kind of, I could see snow capped mountains to the west. Little did I know that I would actually be running through that mountain pass where those snow capped mountains were. Um, and then to the right were just like the standard, like really cool, like brown, like rocky, like Death Valley mountains with like this huge plain down below. And it was just like beautiful bluebird skies with the clouds, kind of just like p- white puffy clouds. And it's like moments like that will sit with you forever. Cause I mean, uh, you know, how many how often do you get to be in that type of environment and in a way be physically and also mentally kind of depleted to some extent, but also feel, you know, feel stronger than you've ever felt before. Um, And that's, again, when people ask me, why do you do these, do those things? It's for moments like that. So
0: 92 hours, 57 minutes after leaving the santa monica pier uh you would arrive on the vegas strip cole what what was your emotion like
1: when you finally saw the welcome to las vegas sign um so it's funny because it's it's actually uh there's it's kind of melodramatic like you know you expect it to be like like confetti cannons going everywhere and all this stuff and like really it's just a a sign that's lit up with Las Vegas and um at the time like it didn't really like resonate with me in the sense of being like oh my gosh I accomplished this great big thing you know it was just kind of um but that was I think also the beauty of this too was that the the outside world really didn't care what I did or was doing um in the sense that people are you know uh, going out to the casinos and doing all this stuff. And, um, I think that's also what makes this event so special is that you're kind of like doing this really epic thing. Like while other people are just like going about their everyday lives. Um, and, uh, that's, that's also There's something empowering about that as well. And so, you know, um, the whole that whole last day there was there was some trials and tribulations you know the the last climb was pretty epic it's a, like a 5,000 foot climb kind of thing you get to the top and I had 24 more miles to go and I was just running on fumes Um, I was actually at the time vying for the men's lead which was kind of exciting Um, and so I was just pushing as hard as I could I was like this is crazy I, I like I, I didn't I'm not gonna win this thing overall but I was pretty damn close I was like. 15 miles away from, or 20, 20 miles away from potentially doing that for, and it's like, you know, uh, just mind blowing to know that that was, uh, possible. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my wife has been getting into running and what's been really exciting was she got to run the last, uh, four miles with me. I had a breakdown moment mentally when I got into the city limits of Las Vegas, I had, 10 miles to go, a six mile stretch and then four more miles straight up to the sign. And I just mentally fell apart. I was like, there was a busy road and I was on the sidewalk and I was almost like uh, just seeing the lights and everything from being so much in kind of this like almost like ethereal state out in the desert. I just, I, I lost my grip with like where I was. I felt so lost. I all I had to do was go straight, but I just needed someone to help guide me because I was so exhausted And I let my mental kind of guard down. Um, And, you know, ultimately that Ashley kind of saved me and she uh, ran, ran with me the last, the last bit and encouraged me. And, you know, she ran, we both ran really fast. I think we did like 11 minute miles into the finish and um, yeah, it was just really special to share that with her as a way to kind of, it's a perfect way to cap it off really. And um, yeah, I would say also that, you know, it was a, at, at, at going through that moment, it was just like, it was, it was kind of like, okay, you're almost done, but it felt so, so hard. It was like the last six miles were like impossible at that point. Everything else felt like so much, so doable. And a lot of my success was that uh, we kind of had this great synergy between me and the crew. I wanted to do well for the crew for them and they wanted to do well for me. And we fed off of each other the whole entire way. Uh, and ultimately came to my crew t- coming to my rescue to get me to the finish. Poetic really. Um, when, when you think about it, right. Cause they,
0: I mean, they literally had your back the entire way and, and, uh, and, and, and then there they were the, that solid shoulder to lean on, right. In those, in those last few miles, when you needed them the most, Cole, it's been said that the speed project, um, is to push the mind and body to unconventional places bordering on an on an alternate surreal reality. Do you agree with that and was that your experience?
1: Yes and yes. 1000%. I mean I don't think um I think I you can get that uh, and and glimmers of that in a 200 mile race. Um but there's something very unique about the speed project that because it's, it's, you know, they have that tagline, no rules, really, it's when you approach it from a creative standpoint, really, like, I look at, I look at us as runners as like artists, like, the the, the course, or like the course, or the route that we choose is kind of that, that canvas. And, you know, our own two feet are kind of the paintbrushes. And, and uh, you know, ultimately, after running the speed project, I mean, I'm hooked. Um, I mean, I think just, being able to, you know, really test myself and experience something entirely different in a whole new way and come out of it really realizing that there's just, you know, it's something that's achievable for anyone. And we can all pull this magic out of ourselves and be our own artist, um, no matter what, it, what that is in life, whether it's running, whether it's cooking, whether it's reading, you know, you name it, um, it, 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 it can be done. Well, if uh, if your running
0: career is a blank canvas, then um, what do you intend to paint next?
1: Yeah. Um, so I would say that um, just there was an article that came out with the Speed Project. Um, I got offered to run another version of their event. They have a new event that's going to be happening um, in November. Um, and it goes through another desert, uh, the Atacama. And so, um, yeah, that's the plan. That's the intent is to, uh, do something that we're, we're trying to coin or call the double down of 300. So, um, you know, trying to push the limits and hopefully, uh, you know, make history and kind of set a new standard for, for athletes to chase after. So that's the big carrot down the way. Um, in the closer carrot is I'm running a race in Canada called the Quebec mega trail, hundred mile. Uh, I feel like it's going to just be another similar to the Tesla Hertz, just a really good, um, you know, kind of litmus test, uh, kind of point for me, never been run a race in Canada, um, in terms of, of an ultra. So it'll be fun. Um, but yeah, that's what I have in the future. So
0: you have the support of some very generous companies. Um, why don't you? Uh, why don't you tell us a little about them?
1: Yeah, so you're talking about the those funky shorts and um, <laughs> with the the cool cam blue camo. And so mm-hmm. uh, I've networked and, and kind of um, partnered with um, these great, really a, a small but great team um, in Hong Kong. The they're all Australian expats, uh, and the brand called T Eight Apparel. Um, very great stuff they're one of the first uh, similar to path projects where they've created this uh a separate short from the underwear and their products are really designed for like very very extreme humid environments i was dealing with chafing issues and so ever ever since i ended up getting a pair of their their products i was like uh, this is this is it like i don't even need anti-chafing cream this stuff is that good and so yeah i've been with them uh, since 2022. Um, yeah, I've used squirrels, Nut butter. Um, that whole, that whole team's been awesome. So they've, they've, they've helped me out. Um, Nathan sports, I was a tech rep for them and I've kind of been like an athlete ambassador for, I feel like I've just kind of like worked my way into the system. Um, so they'll always take care of me. Um, and, uh, untapped nutrition that's a that's a great that's a new one uh thanks to uh eliza lapier who just uh placed second at cocodona uh 250 for ladies um you know vermont maple syrup out of uh, well out of vermont um something that i love about them really is that when we think about race nutrition i was always like carb 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 carb, and uh, as i've progressed i've become more holistic i think in my nutrition. Um, and untapped just makes perfect sense. Cause it's literally like maple syrup and it's low glycemic. And so for me, it gives me the boost I need, but I wanted something that could be more slowing, slow burn kind of. Um, and I dunno, it's, it's just, it's crazy. That's another thing that's crazy to me that it, it works. It's like, uh, you know, who would have thought maple syrup could actually do this stuff? You know, could power a runner.
0: Been, we've <laughs> been putting it on our pancakes for generations, and next I know, thing you know,
1: like, it's used
0: to fuel ultra-distance running. It's, yeah, so it's, it's
1: mind-blowing. So that's 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 been fun. Um, Swiftwick socks is another one. Um, they were a pair of, uh, They were a company that saved my feet at CocoDono, and my feet were already trashed. So um, you know, I've networked with them, been ambassador with them. Um, yeah, I think that's Dion Snowshoes, obviously, Bob Dion and Denise are awesome. They're the owners of Dion Snowshoes. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of the whole my whole crew of different kind of companies that I've connected with that, you know, help me out with product and gear and, you know, any other things that they they're able to to generously offer. So, mm-hmm. um, and if there's and if there's anyone out there listening that represents
0: a, a, a shoe company uh, they you, you got to get this guy uh, uh, on your on your team because uh, uh, you you don't have a shoe deal as of today
1: correct no so Chris I'll tell people like that's one of the things that I want to change in the sport as well is that I I am a professional amateur like I have brands that provide me um, if they can financially then it might be a one-off thing, but really I'm provided through gear and product. Um, I'm not paid a salary or paid a stipend or paid anything to run races and do that stuff. Um, the partnerships that I do have, I have really, I've chose them primarily because of the people and not because of what they can give me. Um, and, um, but yeah, you know, I think that's something that I hope the sport to change more of is, you know, I I I would love to see more athletes have more opportunities to be able to, um, you know, be able to afford to do more projects and stuff. I mean, to put it to put it quick to you, Chris. Too, I, I we had a GoFundMe to help pay for some of the expenses. So like my sponsor truly was the community, the running community, generous friends and and family and others that helped us uh, be able to pull off the speed project. So that was even more motivation for me. I was like, I'm running for all these, these people, they're my sponsors, you know? Um, so anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's the, right. That's the, that's the life of, uh, uh, of,
0: a, of an amateur, uh, elite, uh, ultra distance athlete, right. You've got a, um, you know, you've got a, you've got a scrape and claw, to put together the, um, the resources necessary in order to go do these epic, epic things. It shouldn't be that hard though. Right. Um, and, um, uh, you know, best of luck to you in that, in that regard too, because, uh, I mean, of, of everyone that I've met, uh, in the sport, you are the, you are the most genuine, you're the most thoughtful, the most humble, um, the most down-to-earth elite athlete that I think I've, I've I've ever known, and so if anybody if anybody deserves the financial support um, of either a either a deep-pocketed company or uh, or uh, uh, an altruistic philanthropic uh, um, uh, donor, uh, it would be it would be Cole Crosby. Cole, let's finish with this. Um, how do people follow your adventures? Cause now, yeah. you know, people have heard this cool story and you've got a lot of really interesting, interesting things going on. How do people follow you?
1: Yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, so anyone can follow me on, I mean, Facebook, Instagram is my handles at Crosby 41 um, That's my email as well. Um, I have a website that I've kind of kept in WordPress called Cressing the Summit. Um, so uh you know you can read my blog blog posts or just other other information um obviously with my wife st- starting up chaos crewing company that's something that you're going to eventually be able to see a website um she's building the instagram all that stuff so some of my narratives and and stories going to be interwoven with that um in the future and uh i don't know i mean there's if you just type in my name and ultra runner, I think in Google, I think it comes up with some different ways to link up and stuff too, which is awesome. I don't have Wikipedia yet. Yeah, that's the next step.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, all it's going to take is just a little time to put it together. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll include, I'll include all of those links uh, in the show notes uh, for the listener uh, to, uh, to
1: check you out. Cole, Cole, thank you so much for sharing your story. This has been great. Thank you so much, Chris. Real pleasure. Um, yeah. And, Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, my friend. You too.
0: It's fun to watch Cole develop as an ultra runner, and it's really easy to root for him. Humble, down to earth, hardworking, with a deep interest in seeing others succeed. He's going to continue to do big things in this sport. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half, Walk Double podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoy the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at coach Chris J Dunn and the show's Facebook page at eat half walk double. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember the secret to living well and longer is to eat half walk double and laugh triple and love without measure until next time.